the first epistle of John, chapter 4, verses 7 to 16. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his, of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. The second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body.
Right about last year, there was a big debate as to what constituted marriage. And a big argument that that we should uphold the biblical view of marriage in the UK. And about March last year, the Independent ran an article saying, well, what actually is the biblical view of marriage then? True, the Bible does talk about one man being paired with one woman for life. But, the article said... It also endorses many other kinds of sexual union or marriage, including polygamy and even sexual slavery. In the Old Testament, virgin females are counted literally among the booty of war. In the book of Numbers, God's servant commands the Israelites to kill all the used Midianite women, along with all the boy children, but to keep the virgin girls for themselves. And if a Hebrew girl has been raped, the matter is resolved by her being sold to the person who raped her for about £400, and the man is not allowed to divorce her for the rest of her life. Clearly, there are aspects to this that we would say are just plain wrong. So when we talk about the biblical view of marriage, what do we mean? We need to be careful. And I'm walking into this minefield tonight because one of the questions asked last year was, why did God allow polygamy in the Old Testament for men when it was later condemned, and why was it only acceptable for men? I don't know whether the querier was a lady who fancied having more than one husband, I don't know, but but here we go. Right at the very beginning, it looks as if God's blueprint for marriage is a permanent, exclusive, loving relationship between one man and one woman. When Adam first sees Eve in the Garden of Eden, he's thrilled, and you can understand why, Given that up until that moment in time, his only choice of companion would have been one of the animals. And a dog is a man's best friend, perhaps, but Eve was in a league all of her own. God has taken one of Adam's ribs to make the woman, and this is the fantastic result. This at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, he says. So the precedent for marriage is set. A man shall leave his father and his mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And it's significant in the story that the woman is taken out of man, because kind of she was originally part of him, and the sexual act is then coming together as one flesh again. There is an unequivocal endorsement to a man and woman having sex together and becoming one flesh in the process. It's appropriate because the woman was originally part of the man's body, and their physically coming together is just reuniting what was originally one in the first place. And that, of course was the only way that they could fulfil the biblical mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Two people joining together to make one flesh in the person of the child who is born as a result of that act of union. So that's God's blueprint, man leaving his father and mother, being united to his wife and the two becoming one flesh. Where does polygamy come from? It is never explicitly endorsed by God. Someone said they were hoping I would read out Old Testament verses in favour of polygamy. I can't really do that. There are ways of regulating it and saying that it took place, but there's no verses actually recommending it as a way of life. Sorry if that disappoints anybody here. The first reference to polygamy is found in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, where Cain's descendant Lamech marries two women who had three sons between them. It was partly the pressure to have children that led to the practice of polygamy. So Abraham was married to Sarah for ages, and after decades of trying for a baby, he said, oh, sleep with my slave girl instead. Perhaps we can have a family that way. 
So Abraham obliged and Ishmael was born, but he was not the son that God had promised to Abraham. And his birth complicated matters enormously for Abraham's family then, and arguably for Abraham's descendants ever since. It was Abraham's grandsons who really got the ball rolling with multiple wives. Esau had three. His brother Jacob had two wives and two concubines. That's how he got his 12 sons. And there's no denying that having 12 sons was a a big sign of God's blessing in those days, despite the unorthodox domestic arrangement. But it was all a bit of a mess. The relationships within that family were an absolute nightmare. It happened because Jacob had fallen in love with Rachel, worked seven years for the privilege of marrying her, but was tricked into marrying her relatively unattractive older sister Leah instead. Had to work another seven years before he could marry Rachel, though he was allowed to marry her before the seven years had expired. But the problem was Leah was the one who kept on having children. Didn't really love Leah very much. So Rachel said to Jacob, oh, sleep with my slave girl. And he was happy to oblige. Then Leah said the same, sleep with my slave girl. He did with her as well. Poor old Rachel watched all this happening for years and years and years. Eventually she had two boys, Joseph, who was his father's favourite, and Benjamin. She died giving birth to him. This was, this was a mess. But despite it being a mess, God blessed Jacob through these four women he had on the go. And throughout the Old Testament, actually in all sorts of ways, in our experience as well, we can see God blessing arrangements that are less than ideal. Abraham's first son, Ishmael, born to his slave girl, was never part of God's plan. But God blessed him anyway. I'm going to make of Ishmael a great nation. Didn't have to, but chose to. David, marrying Bathsheba, not his first wife. When he first slept with Bathsheba, she was married to somebody else. When he got her pregnant, David arranged for her husband to be killed in battle. And although their first child died, Bathsheba was the mother of Solomon, who was David's successor to the throne, the king blessed by God with legendary wisdom, who ruled over a peaceful and prosperous kingdom and built God's temple in Jerusalem. Bathsheba was the last person to deserve having her son succeed to the throne. But God blessed what happened anyway. Solomon was the man. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. The mind boggles. How did you remember all those anniversaries? But they led him astray. When he got to be an old man, they turned his heart aside to worship other gods. He ended up losing his devotion to the Lord. All those wives were his undoing. And this was a factor in the eventual fragmentation of the kingdom when Solomon's son came to the throne. So yes, loads of instances of polygamy in the Old Testament. None of them were trouble-free. Despite that, sometimes God blessed them. That's grace. Just because it happens doesn't mean to say that that's God's way or that God approves of it. How did the practice of polygamy develop? Well, there are a number of factors. For Abraham and Jacob, clearly the issue was that their wives couldn't have children, and this was a serious matter in that culture. In their case, they slept with the servant girls. Other men took more than one wife, and that still happens in parts of the world today. First wife can't have children, well, I'll get another one. Have children that way. 
Where a man died without having children, it was actually his brother's duty to marry the widow and try and have children with her to keep his brother's line of the family going. That made polygamy a virtual requirement in some cases. There also seems to have been a tacit assumption that however enjoyable sex might be, and God clearly designed it to be enjoyable, its real purpose was for having children. So there was a kind of underlying view that said, well, once you've got your wife pregnant, you shouldn't really sleep with her again until that child has been born and weaned, and she's capable of conceiving again. That's a hell of a long time to wait. So, your wife falls pregnant, you take a second wife. See if you get her pregnant in the meantime. It was also a tendency for older men to marry younger girls. Trouble was, life expectancy was short. Accidents happened, men died. Wars took place, men were killed. So there's always quite a lot of young marriageable girls compared with a relatively small number of older eligible bachelors. And in many cultures, a girl by herself was extremely vulnerable. You didn't have independent women in those days. Some parts of the world, women aren't independent at all. They need to be under the headship of a man, under the protection of a man, provided for by a man. If the father can't do it, who will? So in many cases, polygamy is a de facto way of looking after women who can't take care of themselves. Come in, be part of the family, be another wife, have more children. You can come under the umbrella of this household. Women were viewed in those days a bit like baby-making factories. And it just didn't seem to be right for women who are marriageable and eligible to have babies just to be not doing what God created them to do. That, that was the view at the time. So, you know, if you can get a woman in a household and have a, get having children, that's all to the good. These are some of the reasons why the practice of polygamy developed. Just because it happened doesn't mean to say it was part of God's plan or that God approved of it. The man being united to his wife and the two becoming one flesh remains God's primary mandate. Marriage between one man and one woman and raising a family was considered a basic duty. Not least because in those days the mortality rate was high. There was a real fear that if you didn't have lots and lots of children your family line could die out. Actually, there was a fear the human race could die out because life expectancy was so short. In some parts of the world, that is still the practice today. Have lots of children, and then maybe some of them will survive. Jesus, when he was asked about his view on marriage, endorsed the two becoming one flesh principle and spoke out against divorce. But let's not forget that Jesus was almost certainly single. There have been recent attempts to argue that he was married. I think they're really little more than sensationalist attempts to upset the boat. You know, suggestive remarks made in various manuscripts, other things that might well have been forged to make a point that isn't really valid. Actually, it's a bit of a storm in the teacup. It doesn't really matter all that much whether Jesus was married or not, but the best evidence is that he wasn't. He was single. And if that's the case, that means that you know, although marriage was the norm, having children was the mandate, Jesus said, actually, you know, as the example of the perfect human life, there is nothing wrong with being single. There is no obligation or expectation that people should be married or that people should have children. 
I accept that lots of people would rather not be single, but there's emphatically nothing wrong with not being married. Jesus models being single as a perfectly valid way of living. And if that's the case, then you don't need polygamy. You don't need, you know, women to be part of a household with a man protecting them because the single way of life actually is perfectly okay. Jesus has endorsed singleness. And we live in a culture, thankfully, where women are not primarily valued for their fertility. Nor do women need a man to represent them and take care of them and provide for them. Single women in our culture are not perceived as an anomaly or as a threat, nor are they particularly vulnerable. These are things of which we can give thanks. So there is no social need for the practice of polygamy in this society. It's easier for us in this culture to fulfil God's normal mandate, one man, one woman for life. So when men and women do get together, a relationship between one man and one woman is the social norm. Or it used to be. In 2014, there were 18.6 million families in the United Kingdom, of which 12.5 million were married couple families. This is still the most common family type in the UK. There were 2 million single parent families. The fastest growing type of family in the UK was where a couple lives together and they have children without being married. Are they doing anything wrong? Instinctively, many people would disapprove. I saw a very old friend last week. He said, I've got no time for people who just live together and have children without being married. They really ought to be married, he said. He has got no, zero interest in Christianity or matter spiritual at all, but deeply ingrained with him is this view. This is how it ought to be. The issue makes us pause. As Christians, we want to say, what constitutes a marriage according to the Bible? And the Bible is frustratingly vague. A man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That, as I've said, is the mandate. Does that then mean that any sexual act between a man and a woman makes them one flesh in the sight of God, for better, for worse, irrevocably? Rosemary read us that passage from 1 Corinthians where Paul says, you know, you, you mustn't take the members of Christ and join them to a prostitute because then that means you're becoming one with her. And he quotes that verse, the two will become one flesh. Michael Golder, commenting on that passage, puts it starkly, saying that the one flesh principle is valid for any sexual union. I quote, the sexual sinner unites himself for all eternity in one flesh with the whore. That's what he says, Paul is saying. And if that isn't daunting enough, when you factor in what Jesus said about not being able to break the one flesh union without being guilty of adultery, you find yourself with the uncomfortable idea that for many people some drunken, fumbling, teenage sexual experience means that a couple who care nothing for each other are irrevocably married in the sight of God. Do we really want to say that's how it works? Now, you may come straight back to me and say, well, that is precisely why sex should only take place within a marriage relationship, and I would agree wholeheartedly with you. But I still want to say, what constitutes a marriage relationship then? If it's not just the joining together in the act of physical intercourse. 
See, the problem is that Genesis, Jesus, Paul, they all talk about the two becoming one flesh, as if the sexual union, the two becoming one flesh, were the be-all and end-all. But it isn't. Clearly not. We would want to say, or I would want to say, firmly, the one flesh bit should surely only take place within the context of a relationship of total commitment, love and trust. You try finding a verse that says that in the Bible. Trying to find proof texts about marriage in the Bible is a singularly unrewarding experience. And if you're looking at this sermon in groups, I kind of ran through all the texts about husband-wife relationships and just how difficult they are, actually, to interpret and apply. But Paul says, in a marriage relationship, you sign ownership of your body over to your sexual partner. Body doesn't belong to you anymore. belongs to the person you're married to. Clearly, if you are going to make that kind of commitment to someone, it needs to be someone that you love and trust enough to do that. Because the acts of intercourse makes at least one, if not both, people involved extremely vulnerable. It needs to take place within a context of security, love, trust and commitment. That's marriage. Let's not forget that in the beginning, when God made us male and female as well, he made us in his image, after his likeness. Significant that. God made them male and female in his image. In our relationships, we are called to reflect the goodness and the love and the holiness of God. That goes for every relationship, but it applies particularly to the most intimate and close relationship between a husband and wife. We are called to reflect the image of God. As God is made up of Father, Son and Holy Spirit, three people being one God, so mysteriously two people when they marry, they make one person. What's God like? God is 100% loving. God is 100% faithful. When we display those qualities in our relationships with each other, we show that we are made in his image. And those qualities of total love total faithfulness, should certainly characterise the most intimate of our relationships, particularly since when children are born, it's best for them to grow up in homes characterised by trust, honesty, faithfulness, love and commitment. Now, loads of married people don't have that kind of relationship. It's what they set out to do when they get married. Sometimes it means that the marriage drifts apart or breaks up, and that's always a tragedy when it happens. Sometimes by hard work and with God's help, the relationship can be rebuilt, or even, in some cases, developed from scratch. When that happens, it's always a work of grace. But God's plan, God's purpose, God's vision is that couples coming together physically should do so in the context of permanent, loving, committed, secure relationships. That's how it should work. That's what marriage is about. And if a relationship is not permanent, loving, committed, secure and exclusive, the bit of paper doesn't make it marriage as God intended. And where couples have a relationship which is characterised by love and trust and commitment and faithfulness and permanence and exclusivity... 
but they're not married, does the absence of a bit of paper mean that that relationship cannot reflect the goodness of God? And if not, why not? I'd always want to ask a couple why, if they've got that kind of relationship, why they don't get married, since they're married in all but name. But perhaps it's the quality of the relationship that counts more than the bit of paper. Even more controversially, perhaps, we might ask, and this is the context of the whole debate about what the biblical view of marriage is, if a same-sex couple have a relationship which is characterised by love, trust, commitment, faithfulness, permanence and exclusivity, can that relationship reflect the goodness of God or not? And if not, why not? That's a question that's raising a huge amount of anguish in the church, and I was asked to talk about polygamy tonight, so I'm not going to attempt to answer it. But I will say this, when we discuss and debate and argue about that question with each other, and when we disagree with each other over it, do we display those qualities of love, commitment, trust, faithfulness, and grace? That's our calling. How do we reflect the image of God in all our relationships? The closest relationships the relationships we have with each other, the relationships we have with those with whom we disagree, the challenge and the calling is to reflect the image of God in every way. And we do so by building relationships of love, commitment, trust and faithfulness. That's our calling. That's our challenge. That's the privilege that comes from being made in the image of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are made in your image, but the image is marred in us. We fail each other. We betray each other. We hurt each other. And when we do that, we fail you, we betray you, and we hurt you as well. Some of us have been deeply hurt in the past. We still carry the scars and the memories. Some of us find it hugely difficult to trust anybody, to love anybody, to believe that we can be loved. Lord, help us, if we're in that place, to believe that we can be loved by you. Help us to learn to trust you. And give us a security in that relationship which can gradually be extended to other relationships as well. Help us, in this church, in our homes, in our partnerships to reflect your image. Give us trust. 
Give us love. Give us faithfulness. Help us, Lord, to honour you by how we live in our relationships with each other. That we might fulfil your plan and purpose for our lives. For we ask these things in your name. Amen.